Good morning. <clears throat> well, we are continuing to look in the New Testament uh, as the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul and others, uh, looking at the prayers that the Holy Spirit led them to pray for the body of Christ and how we gain from that some direction and some wisdom, uh, even content to our prayers that, that we're learning from the Holy Spirit speaking the heart of God through these passages of Scripture, how we can more powerfully, more effectively, more comprehensively uh, pray for each other. And Artem read for us this passage in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul is now praying for the Philippians. We looked at his prayer for the Ephesians last week. And in verse 3, he starts out with this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Paul was from Texas. Um, <laughs> but the... the um, the publishers just forgot the apostrophe. But Paul is saying, similar here to what he said to the Ephesians, he starts with gratitude. And, and I, I believe we're going to see that God keeps reinforcing that so that that keeps becoming a more pervasive part of our prayers for one another. That the very fact that we're praying for someone who's a believer, as we've said, is just an incredible miracle. I, I had a, a gentleman this past week describing to me his journey to accept Jesus Christ. And as he was telling a story, once again, it was like nothing about that story predicts that you would be a Christian. And many of you, many of you were raised in very godly homes. Many of you were raised in, in, in a sense, histories that predicted at least the possibility and likelihood of becoming a Christian. But in some ways, that's almost irrelevant. Because it's not just, was I raised in a way to intellectually believe something? But the miracle that I finally came to a moment in my life, you finally came to a moment in your life, where you actually chose to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's miraculous. We get to be thankful for that in ourselves. And then as we're praying for one another, that we have that mindset of amazement and awe at what God has done. So that that gratitude reflects our recognition of what an unlikely and amazing miracle that salvation is. But I like what he says, always offering prayer with joy. So again, he starts with thanks. But that thanks is accompanied with joy. And we've talked about this before. Joy in the New Testament is not a happy feeling. It can include a happy feeling. But at its core, joy is not a happy feeling. It's a celebration of truth. So on the worst night of his life... Jesus prayed that we would have his joy. And, and as we've talked about numerous times, we read that worst night of Jesus' life, anguishing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he wasn't having happy feelings. But what he's proclaiming is nothing broke his joy. 
He kept celebrating with the Father the amazing things that were going to be accomplished, even through his suffering and death, and nothing stopped his celebration. And then we have in, in Hebrews 12, adds to that, that Jesus went through that suffering, went through that horrendous death. And again, not the horrendous physical death in and of itself, but the outpouring of God's wrath because of joy set in front of him. Jesus was celebrating the fact that everybody in this room who has ever put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you were five years old or 55 years old, you're going to spend all of eternity with God because Jesus died for you. And Jesus is saying, that's worth celebrating. Even while I'm going through the horrible thing that will accomplish it, that's worth celebrating. And so Paul is saying, well, I'm praying for you. And while you're praying for me and we're praying for each other, we get that gratitude, but it's gratitude with celebration. We're celebrating the unbreakable truth of what has been accomplished. And he goes on to this. He drops down to verse 6. Or I'm dropping down to verse 6. Uh, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we've talked about this promise, this principle, this truth numerous times. And, and it will never be too many times because I think for most of us, there will be moments and situations and people where we need this promise reaffirmed. So, the, the confidence here, Paul is not saying, you know what, Philippians, I am confident that you are the most faithful believers on the planet and nothing's going to break your kind, good heart and your obedience. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, my confidence is in God's unbreakable commitment to you. God's unbreakable commitment. And every now and then, our confidence in that will be tested. So if I were to ask for a show of hands, I would bet a whole bunch of people in this room, if I were going to ask this, how many people have seen a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a friend, somebody in your circle of care, somebody in your circle of family or friendship, who put their faith in Jesus Christ and walked with God, and you could see that's the real thing. God's really doing something in them. And then they wandered away. And you began the heartbreak of prayer for their return. Some of you are still in that heartbreak of prayer for their return. Some of you have already seen the outcome after many years. But part of what God's promising here, and, and please think about this. Please, you know, let this sink in. God's saying, did you see me start something? Did you see me start something in them? Did you see me lay a hand of miraculous work into their life? Did you see that? Then please know this. I'll never stop. I'll never quit. I'll never give up. I will never throw them away. I will never be done. And I like the way he ends it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. He's talking about the return of Christ. And I've heard actually plenty of people through the years that said, man, I've been praying for 10 years. Should I just stop? I mean, is it useless? Now, some of you 
are the person who is prayed for. I'm the person who is prayed for and returned. And that might have been on day 10 years plus one. But the bottom line, God's saying, if you look out there and, and you don't see Jesus returning with clouds, you don't see the believers of past history rising right there and you're jumping up to meet them, if that's not happening, I'm still working. Until the day of my son's return, I'm working to continue everything I started. I don't lose hope. And, and what he's saying here is, and I don't want you to lose hope either. And so Paul's rejoicing in this confidence. This for him is, a, we'll see this word in this concept. He's rejoicing in this concept of God's unbreakable faithfulness, God's unbreakable commitment. And, and I also like the way he says it. Who began a good work in you will perfect it. And we have the word, we use the word perfect. And what we mean, what we mean when we say it is flawless. And actually the Greek in this, and some of your translations may actually show this. What the word perfect here means, a fully mature blossoming. A fully mature blossoming. So this is not a verse that promises that one day you and I be walking around on planet earth sinless. And that somebody go, man, I knew Reg when he was a sinner. But now he's just perfect. Don't, don't hold your breath. But what he's saying is, but I will keep maturing and blossoming him. I will keep working for maturity, for completeness, for wholeness. You get to pray that for each other. You get to pray that for me and I for you. And then we get to be confident of this. Father, the thing I'm praying for, I'm not begging you. And sometimes we do pray this way. I'm not begging you to care about what you started and keep working on it. I get to praise you. I get to rejoice that that commitment is already in place. And I'm rejoicing with you over that commitment. Even while I pray through tears of absolute heartbreak and sorrow over a brother or a sister, a friend, a child, a parent who has wandered away from God. And many of us have experienced that. And he goes on in verse 7, he says, It's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you were all partakers of grace. And as he's praying, I like this, this aspect of his prayer, that he's recognizing the people I'm praying for are just like me. We all depend on grace. We're all partakers in grace. So even when I'm praying for that believer who's wandered away, I'm not praying from a superior role where I earned my stability with God. And now I condescend to pray for the little weaklings. This is a recognition, Father, I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for your grace. There is nothing naturally superior in me. There is nothing naturally superior in me that led to me being here. I have received a gift of grace. And we know this, 10,000 sermons on this, unearned favor from God. Unearned favor from God. And we access that, we walk through the doorway of those unearned gifts through faith, believing Him. 
And Paul's remembering that. While I'm praying for you, I'm remembering this about you and I'm remembering it about me. We are shared partakers of grace. Nobody's here because we're better or because we earned it. And he goes on. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound. But then he talks about it in very specific ways, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. And discernment. And it's interesting that he says it this way. So again, we're recognizing God's not talking about love that's just a fluffy, warm, fuzzy feeling toward people. That if I'm going to love effectively, if you and I are going to love effectively, God's praying for us through this prayer of Paul. God's saying, here's how to pray for yourselves and here to pray for each other. That your love is grounded in truth. Your love is grounded in real truth, real knowledge. And that means I discern what's important to God as I'm praying for other people. I discern what's not acceptable, not so I can feel superior, but so that I don't tolerate things. We won't go read it, but, but in 1 Corinthians, um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7. But in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a gentleman who is living in horrible sin. And what's interesting is the first Corinthians thought they were being real loving by tolerating it. He was living in, in deep perversion. And they were the really cool modern church that was just loving him and tolerating him. And Paul has to chastise him and says, you know what? Show some discernment here. You're allowing corruption and destruction to spread in this man's life because you don't have the moral courage to address it. So real truth and real discernment means we don't just pretend that love means tolerance. We do not pretend the lie that love means we act like everything's okay. And so that man, he commands, discipline him. Put him out of fellowship if he won't repent. First, absolutely, passionately invite him to repentance. And if he will not repent, put him out of fellowship. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes the outcome of that battle. And he says, you know what? The guy's repented. Now bring him in. Now reaffirm your love for him. And, and here's one thing that we frequently see in the church. And this should not be. This should not be. That we find out about someone's history. And we disdain them for their history. In spite of repentance. I've seen marriages destroyed because somebody found out something about their husband's or wife's history, even though they've been absolutely transformed through repentance and the power of the Holy Spirit, but they cannot, they cannot let go of the condemnation that goes with knowing that history. In the body of Christ, our history is swallowed up in the death of Jesus Christ. That's an ongoing process. So what, what this passage was about was he's repented, restore him to full fellowship. It doesn't mean make him the pastor of the church. Restore him to full fellowship. And that recognition of restoration, 
Actually, let's read this because I, I want it right in front of us. Go to Galatians chapter 6. First three verses. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So he's cautioning, cautioning us, don't define yourself superior because you're walking in repentance with God. That's all about the grace of God. Now invite that person who's in sin, invite them to that same walk. Invite them passionately, but he even gives this, this really good caution in a spirit of gentleness. So even that person in sin in 1 Corinthians, when he was caught in sin, the first approach needed to be a gentle approach. We really want you walking with God. It really matters for us to see you walking where you're free to enjoy the blessings of intimacy with God. So we need to address this sin in your life. And he's still cautioning on real humility here to recognize, I am also subject to temptation. You know, one of the things that's true is while I'm dealing with somebody in their sin, probably the easiest temptation without falling into their sin is just the sin of pride. Well, I would never be as stupid as you. I would never do as much evil as you've done. I would never disobey God as much as you've disobeyed God. And, and so that, that humility of there of recognizing, you know what? I am subject to temptation, and the only way I stand, the only way I stand, is by deep, faithful intimacy with Jesus Christ. And then through Him, I can do all things. So again, this is not a strain my shoulder while I pat myself on the back that I'm better than you while I help you. There's still a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of humility. And as always, a spirit of incredible gratitude. Father, how wonderful that I get to stand with you and you provided everything I need. I can't brag about this. And Paul says that numerous times through the books. I can't brag about this. It's all gifts. It's all gifts. Going back to Philippians. He continues out of this real knowledge and discernment that you may approve things that are excellent to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And this is actually still out of his prayer about love, abounding in love. That our love includes approving excellence. Now, one of the things that I hear frequently as I'm counseling with different families, and we talked about this before, because this starts right in the home. All of this stuff always starts right in the home. Is Christian sons and daughters that are discouraged and, and wounded and sometimes, unfortunately, even bitter and resentful because they say, you know what? I only hear from mom and dad when I screw up. I don't get to hear 
approval of excellence. Now, some moms and dads might go, well, I'd be glad to approve it as soon as you show a little excellence. But this is about a mindset of supernatural agape love that means I look for the beautiful things in my son, my daughter. I look for it because part of abounding in love means I'm eager to pour out approval of excellence. And I'm not setting the bar so high that I can say, you know what? You've gotten to age 30 and you still haven't hit excellence. I haven't seen one thing worth approving yet. That means I'm almost certainly very blind. So the mind of God, and it's worth thinking about you and I. So let's put excellence in this context. All of my sin is forgiven between me and God. All of it. And now in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, what he's gathering and keeping is all the gold and silver of my choices. All the precious stones, when I obey him, when I love him, when I trust him, when I honor him. And you could look at my day and go, Reg, that looks like a really pretty bad day. I mean, here you were sort of snarky and here you were in a bad mood and you let everybody know it. And here you were sort of selfish and immature. And you could look through my day and God could go, whoa, you know what, Reg? They're right. All that stuff was a part of your day. But I want you to know this, son. I forgive you for those things. I paid for them through my son's death. They're not on your account. But here's this moment right here. When you got on your face before me and you prayed for your wife and your daughter from the heart, and I love that moment, and I'm keeping it. And I'm going to honor and reward that moment. That's the heart of God. He hunts for the thing to keep. He's not praying proportions. Well, you need to get your good stuff at least above 49% before I'll notice it. And that's what we do so often in families is we wait for some kind of um, standard to be exceeded before we honor and recognize something moving in the right direction. So, and this is not just for parents. This is also for the body of Christ. That we would recognize good in each other and honor it. That we would recognize good choices and good movement and good directions in each other. And we would encourage it. And we would say thank you when it's visible. So that abounding in love includes show, show an approval of excellence. And it means hunt for it. Don't wait till it slaps you in the face. And he goes on and he says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness... And I love it anytime the Word of God does this. Because anytime the, that God uses the word fruit, you know this, I bet most of you know this, that I recognize He's talking about growth. He's not talking about success or failure or perfection. He's talking about growth. He's saying, I want to see, because, because I'm praying this for you, I'm expecting to see you to continue maturing in true righteousness. And then again, we get to pray for that each other rather than going, well, here, I'm, I'm here to condemn because I don't see enough righteousness. I want to keep encouraging growth in righteousness through my prayers. Now he goes on and uh, I'm going to drop down how are we doing on? Oh, excellent. I've got at least 45 minutes left to preach. 
Um, He talks about, for a while, he talks about the fact that his circumstances, right in the middle of his prayer, he's just giving him a little update on how things are going. And he said, my circumstances have turned out for the good of the gospel. Because some people are preaching the gospel because my testimony has fired them up. And he says, there's even some people preaching the gospel because they're jealous of me. And they want to look better than me. And they want to look holier than me. And he says, I don't care why they're preaching the gospel. I'm glad they're preaching the gospel. But he goes on to this. In verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And so as we pray for each other, we pray for each other's lives. We pray for our own life and we pray for each other's lives that we're recognizing, Father, here's what I'm praying for this brother's life, for this sister's life. That through their life, Christ would be proclaimed. And we've talked about this numerous times. This is not about everybody being an evangelist. Doesn't mean, you know, dear God, while my, while my son or daughter's off at college, turn them into a fiery evangelist. That might not be their gifting. But this prayer we can pray. Father, I pray that their life would proclaim Christ. I pray that their conversation would proclaim Christ. I pray that their inclinations and their battles as others are are witnessing those battles would proclaim Christ. That when they ace that test or they totally bomb on that test, their life would proclaim their faith in Christ. That on and on and on, we're praying for ourselves, for each other, our sons and daughters, and, and all of us praying also for our parents, that we're praying for brothers and sisters and each other to have lives that just show Jesus Christ to somebody else. In a quiet way, in a loud way, in a direct way or an indirect way, that we're praying for this in alignment with the heart of God. This is the heart of God being proclaimed in Paul's prayer. That we would be praying that, Father, you know, help my kid do good or, you know, help my husband get that promotion or help my, help my wife get that project done or all the different ways we pray for each other that we would pray, but do this in a way that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, which will always be more important than the test or the promotion or the project. It will always be more important. And we keep that, that proportion, we keep that priority in our prayers. But he goes on to this too. And he's rejoicing again. Here's Paul just rejoicing again. And he says, I rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And as we're praying for ourselves, as we're praying for others. Once again, it's worth comprehending with some degree of biblical accuracy what what Paul means here. So if we could look at Paul's life and we could see a whole lot of suffering. We hit this passage, it feels like at least once a month, but go to 2 Timothy 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. And let's start at verse 10. And Paul says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, my patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me 
at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. And, and I, if, we, if we had more time, I would go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, but you can do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists a lot of his sufferings. It's a horrible list. I wouldn't want one-tenth of Paul's list. And, and in fact, as I was preparing for today and I was reading through that list, part of my prayer for Paul was, Father, pour out incredible honor on Paul for that list. He's in your presence now, enjoying your delight, enjoying your pleasure, enjoying your thank yous and your, and your praises. Pour honor on him that he remained faithful to Jesus Christ through that list. But here's what Paul says. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. We've talked about this numerous times. It will come up again. God's rescue very frequently has nothing to do with improving the circumstances. That's not what I want to hear. I want to know that if I pray, dear God, these circumstances are miserable. God says, whoa, I'm not going to let that happen. And he just steps in and rescues me from the circumstances. And what Paul is saying is, God let me endure all those circumstances. He didn't stop the stoning. I was stoned till I, they thought I was dead. I was whipped until my back was torn open. I was put in prison till I was starving and dying of thirst. I was rejected. I was ridiculed. I was beat. Um, on and on he describes those sufferings. And then he says this crazy thing, God rescued me. And I know I've said this before, but it's real important that we absorb this. God's rescue means that the purposes of the enemy did not get accomplished in me. That I didn't turn bitter against God. I triumphed over the enemy. Go to Romans 8. There's always a reason. But in Romans 8, we have this incredible, beautiful, beautiful, scary passage. In verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So again, now for all believers, Paul's laying out a very unpleasant sounding list. Persecutions, nakedness, famine, sword, peril. I'm just going to be in danger. And he's saying, you're going to defeat the enemy right in the middle of that because that thing, that thing cannot separate you from the love and purposes of God. So that we're learning a deeper maturity. And I, I will say this frequently too. We get to ask God to change the circumstances. We absolutely get to. And he in fact commands us to. Do you have a request? Bring it to me. Bring it with thanksgiving. But that we're learning this larger wisdom. Fathers, I pray for myself as I pray for my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. What I'm praying for most is that we comprehend true victory. That we comprehend how we defeat the enemy even if you don't change the circumstances. Because nothing about that circumstance can separate us from your love. 
This is all about a love relationship with God. This is all about a love relationship with God. And what God is saying is nothing can break that love relationship. I could turn away from it in ignorance. I I could refuse to enjoy it in bitterness. But it's not broken. It's right there for me. All I got to do is choose to triumph over the enemy. And I say, all I got to do is choose. That might be the hardest battle and journey of my life, but it's available to me. Going back to Philippians. He continues and he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. So now it's them praying for him. And the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope. That I will not be put to shame in anything. But that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body. Whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And similar to Christ proclaimed, that now he's saying that what we're praying for, let me get to the right pen again, is Christ exalted. That my life brings honor and glory to God. And that I'm praying that for you. That you're praying that for me. So that when you pray for me and I pray for you, we think that, Father, Please exalt, lift up high, and bring praise and honor to the name of Jesus Christ by what you accomplish in this person's life, by how they walk with you, and even through tragedy or sorrow, that they accomplish majestic purpose that exalts the name of Christ. When Troy was praying right before the sermon, and I, I, I love this, but he says, you know, God, answer these prayers in the way that brings you the most glory. Don't just answer them, and unfortunately, God's not stupid. Uh, don't just answer them because I said the right formula, and now you're obligated to do this. We're talking to a living, thinking God, but we're in alignment with His purposes when we can say, glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Answer this prayer, and I'm really going to keep praying for this person in their anguish or their sorrow or their need. I'm going to keep praying for them to find a job, or I'm going to keep praying for their healing. I'm going to keep praying for these fathers. I'm going to keep praying without apology because you told me I could. But I'm going to pray that you glorify the name of Jesus Christ in the way you answer this prayer. And again, he says this crazy thing. Is that ruler thing up on the... I figured out how to turn it off. I am turning into quite a tech genius. Don't be impressed. (laughs) Do be impressed. I'm so good at it. Thank you. I'll give you that 10 bucks I promised you later. (laughs) And it's exalted through my life or my death. That's a hard thing to pray for one another. That's a hard thing to pray for a son or a daughter. But Father, it will matter for the rest of eternity if my daughter dies bringing you honor. It will matter for the rest of eternity. Don't do anything with that. But that's what he's saying. 
that we get the larger picture, even for the, the, the ones most precious to us or for ourselves, that we would recognize this. Father, I'm praying for Christ to be proclaimed and Christ to be exalted in the life of this person I'm praying for, even if that requires their death. And again, because we're not talking to a stupid God. We're not talking to a frivolous or foolish God. He is not going to waste my daughter's life on something frivolous. That if it becomes the moment or the day when Aaron dies to glorify Jesus Christ, it will be a majestic day. And I could barely comprehend that through my sorrow, but I would hope that I would remember it and go, Father, this will matter for the rest of eternity. That my friend, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, my, my friend, my, so, my own son or my own daughter offered their life for the glory of Jesus Christ. We have missionaries that we're praying for. Any one of them in, in, in their journey of delivering the gospel in Siberia or China or wherever they are, not, not only could face the possibility of imprisonment, they could die. And what Paul is saying is, if God uses that for his kingdom, that's okay. It's not only okay, it's majestic. And that we learn that, that, that flavor, we learn that way of thinking, we learn that prioritizing, that we recognize if my son or my daughter, my friend, my brother, my sister, our missionary that we're praying for, we really are praying for a hand of protection over them and we get to. And we will see God do miraculous things to protect his sons and daughters. Whether it's driving down the highway and having a car wreck, whether it's preaching the gospel in a foreign country, we will get to see God do miraculous things. But we will also get to see him glorify his name through tragedy, through persecution, and even through death. Now, we got about like, one-tenth of what was in this passage for us to gather. But it's a lot to gather. That's still a lot. Let's pray together. Father, as we're studying these prayers, we really ask that your Spirit would help us to not see them as an interesting thing about Paul or an interesting aspect of the New Testament. But Father, that I and each one of us, we would recognize that you're giving us a training manual and that we show up for training. You're taking us to boot camp and we would sign up on purpose to be trained in prayer. To make our prayers for one another more powerfully effective. And Father, I thank you that we get to pray for anything that, that looks in front of us like it needs your help. We get to because you've, you've not only commanded us to, you've told us to come boldly into your presence to bring our requests and our prayers. And you've told us to come with a mindset of gratitude and thanks because what you do with those requests will always be good. But Father, we still ask that your spirit would take us deeper and deeper. That we're praying for larger and more majestic things than the immediate need. That even out of the immediate need for job or healing, for health or strength, or for a better circumstance, or for a healed marriage, whatever we're praying for, that we also look to the larger eternal things that you want to accomplish in every situation. That we pray for each other to abound in love.
in real truth, in real discernment, with real rejoicing over excellence, that we would pray for one another to keep growing and exalting and proclaiming Jesus Christ in everything. And that we would be very thankful of the miracle that we're even here as believers. What a miracle, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen.